Self-regulation will always be a challenge, but if somebody's going to be in charge, it might as well be me. From Daniel Axt. Welcome back to Season 10 of the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we connect the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning that's finally being taught in our schools today and emotional intelligence training used in our modern workplaces for improved well-being, achievement, productivity, and results. Using what I saw as the missing link, the application of practical neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning and launched this podcast five years ago with the goal of bringing all the leading experts together in one place to uncover the most current research that would bring back how the brain learns best by taking us all to new and often unimaginable heights. For today's episode number 298, we'll be speaking with someone I got to know well, as we both took and became certified with a neuroscience certification course through Mark Robert Waldman, learning the basics of neuroscience and a unique technique called neurocoaching that we both can use to help individuals, schools, or organizations. Grace Reynolds, who lives in Tasmania, Australia, near Antarctica, went on to achieve a deeper level of certification as an advanced certified trauma-centered neurocoach. We've been friends and colleagues for years, studying and learning brain-based coaching strategies, and she recently asked me, have you covered neuroscience and trauma yet? And I knew we touched on it, but hadn't covered it thoroughly yet. We've covered trauma in the brain in pieces, with Dr. Bruce Perry's What Happened to You book, Sarah Payton and her work on anxiety and self-regulation, or even Dr. Lori Desitel's work on rewiring our perceptions of discipline in our schools. And it was even a part of our interview with Hans Apple. He was a school counselor whose book, Award-Winning Culture, took off in schools across the country. And I remember while reading Hans's book, it was in the first few pages that he mentioned how he had a difficult childhood, and he talked about how the sound of his back door opening after school would make his skin crawl as he remembered the trauma that would occur for him in his life after school, urging him to spend more time at school away from home. And I wonder how many of our students have stories like this. I remember in the first few pages of Dr. Bruce Perry's What Happened to You book, he talked about a student who would act out in class, and it turned out the teacher's cologne was triggering him to a bad memory of a past experience, showing us that triggers can occur and set us off when we least expect it. So I wonder, how do past traumas show up and how do they impact our life? What can they teach us about how we might respond to certain life situations? And what self-regulation strategies can we use to help us to maintain balance in our life? While I didn't have an experience as painful as Hans Apple's or the student with the cologne, these stories made me remember something from over 20 years ago that made my skin crawl, and it still does when I think about it. Psychological trauma impacts our brain and can trigger us to feel threatened 
even when we're not in a threatening situation. When I hear the sound of ice hitting a glass from a refrigerator ice machine, this sound takes me back to a time I remember someone pouring themselves another drink at night, and I just didn't understand it. I can see the memory and feel the unhappiness from that time period clearly each time that I hear that sound. This traumatic memory shows me that trauma, once it hits our brain, embeds itself deeply in there until we can uncover it, identify it, and then figure out what we'll do with it so it loses its power over us and doesn't interfere with our future results. Trauma is something we've recently begun to train our teachers with. Our episode with Dr. Michael Gaskell on leading schools through trauma remains one of our most listened to episodes. And I've communicated with Matthew Portell, whose work and podcast covers trauma-informed education. We just haven't been able to connect to set up a time to speak, but we'll find a way to connect his work since there's no better time than now to become trauma-informed. And I say this at a time when it's become important to understand in my own personal life since the world sometimes throws us curveballs and we're forced to stop and figure it all out. And I'm sure my personal story will resonate with many of you listening, especially if you have children going back to school this fall. Our girls, ages 11 and 13, have just come back to school. Arizona students get out in May, so they go back the end of July. And both are in new schools. The youngest transitioned to middle school and the oldest to high school. And life as it was for them has changed suddenly. Life with this new transition just seems to be a lot for both our girls, and I hear this is not uncommon. Trauma-informed expert Matthew Portell reached back to me about our interview this week, and he let me know what we're experiencing with these new transitions is becoming the norm with preteens and teens. When a breakdown happens, or a situation that overtakes a child or an adult for that matter, we're left with trying to figure out the pieces of what to do next. In our situation, we're still working through the pieces and reading books and looking through the best direction to support our children. I was referred to New York Times bestseller, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers by Lisa Damore to help us with some understanding of what might be happening to our girls as they're moving to new schools, entirely new friend groups and new lives and ways that we can help them cope with these new experiences with some understanding that goes beyond what our parents would have done for us. They would have kicked us out the door and said, just get to school as the door slams shut behind us. Times are different now, and I know when we know better, we do better. So today, I'm going to be asking our guest, Grace Reynolds, for some strategies that could help us all move forward in our lives and understand what happens to our brain during times of high stress and trauma. Let's meet Grace Reynolds. Welcome, Grace Reynolds, my dear friend from Mark Waldman's Neuro Coaching. Welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much for being here. Ah, uh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here and to be able to serve your your audience wherever they are, your clients. <laughs> well, it's it's crazy, Grace, because all these years I've known you, I never really looked at the map of Australia to see, you know, where exactly is Tasmania mm -hmm. now. You know, I look at the statistics and I'm going to put a map in the show notes because Tasmania is right at the bottom of Australia and we have listeners all over yeah. Australia and some where you are. But can you just explain what's Tasmania like right now for someone in Arizona and it's like 
heat warnings over here, 118 <laughs> degrees. Oh, this week we've been minus two and minus one. And, and then yesterday it jumped to 12 and then back to two. So, yeah, it can be any, I think probably any weather from basically minus three, minus two at this time of the year to, as I said, yesterday it was such a shock. It jumped to 12. We're all standing going, what on earth's going on? But then today it was very rainy and very cold and very wet again. So it's that. You know, that wonderful thing. We're just above the Antarctic. So the next stop down is Antarctica. Wow. Love it. Love it. I didn't know that about you. Yes. All, these, all these years, you've always got jackets on. And I, I'm over in Arizona. Yes. <laughs> and just trying to, like, put the, the air conditioning down a bit lower. I never thought about where you were in the world. So this just makes everything, you know, smaller when you get to see where people actually live. And then to see it on the map, it's really cool. Yeah, I um. There's one. Uh, wasn't a podcast. It was sort of like one of these for a, a live show, and I'm actually in a in an Audi, uh, with with absolute like you would have thought I was a polar bear. <laughs> you know, I watched that one. I took notes on it. Just uh, I'd like to 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 see some past things that you've done, and I did see that. So that was really a, a, a cute hoodie. So for sure, I've seen that. But now I understand. Yes. I now wish I, I could. <laughs> yeah yeah we have to look after ourselves yeah definitely so so now grace we've known each other over the years getting that you know intense certification from mark waldman i it took me uh yeah. years to get mine you know he kept telling me my my assignment wasn't good enough so it took me a very long time and i know you've oh. spent 45 years or more helping people come out of trauma so can you share a little bit about your background and, you know, perhaps why you've been so successful in helping people in acute psychiatric hospitals, high security prisons, refugees and schools to understand how we can overcome trauma? I think one of the main reasons uh, uh, for my success if you want to call it that, I would say my client's success. But um, one of the reasons why I've been able to help so clearly, um, I, I sort of am like a, you know, I really uh, want to be accurate for my clients. And one of the main reasons for my accuracy is I come from a very broken childhood, a very traumatic childhood. Um, my the sexual abuse I received at the hands of uh, people who were looking after me uh, commenced at the age of three and didn't finish till adulthood. Um, I was put in a home around 13 and a half uh, and I thought I would get some uh, semblance of life, but things happened in the home and we were all sent back to the people where we come from. Uh, so it continued until I was 15 and a half. So I've done an extraordinary amount of work, A, for my own benefit, because um, I wanted a life and I didn't want what happened back then to harm me all my life. And so I looked for things that helped me regain life in a way that I didn't 
didn't force me to keep going back in memories. Like I didn't want to keep um, peeling the Band-Aid off. Um, I, I was on another, um, I was learning how to do videos for my business and I described my years at uni, which was, which only happened, I only went to university when I was 49. So that was my first and now I've got three degrees and, you know, are going for more. Um, but I, I describe it at, I was, my memories, my, my brain, what I understood to be memories back then, you know, I was always um, interrupted going here, here, you know, my thought patterns were, and I was on high alert and I was trying to, you know, struggle doing my study, struggle, struggle living in a, um, a residential college, struggle going to therapy, struggle. I did um, psychotherapy with a very experienced specialist in trauma um, for 11 years uh, before I found neuro neuroscience. So um, it's been a real journey for me, a struggle for me, trying different things, different approaches, different ways to heal myself um, and ended up harming myself more. Um, so that's why I think, um, I remember a psychiatrist friend saying to me once, the best way to help someone else is to do your own work. And so um, I went on that journey. And I remember in ministry training, there was, a, um, there was another professor of pastoral care who said to me, um, if you don't work out what happened to you in your childhood this was to the whole class not just to me um then you will never you will take that same journey into your faith journey so no matter what faith you were um if you had not worked out your own journey from your childhood you would take that and you would have the same journey and unfortunately i tried to prove him wrong and he's right <laughs> that is very true. So I'm very thankful for finding Mark Waldman and the work that we now do because then I can accurately help a person discern who they are and their uniqueness and their sanctity as a human being. So I set out. I don't, I don't want any child to go through what I did. So my goal in life is to help everyone walk with each other on this earth without harming each other. Beautifully said, beautifully said, Grace. So what is different? We talked about it a little bit on, on the email and you, you talked about a lot there that ties back to some of the work that I've touched on through other books and speakers that I've highlighted in the backstory. But there's something massively different about what we were trained on through Mark Waldman in this unique method of neurocoaching. Can you just explain what's the difference? Why did all those years of psychotherapy not work? And why does this? Um, I would put it down to network neuroscience. There are a lot of coaches out there using the word neuroscience, even for neuro-linguistic programming. And I've studied neuro-linguistic neuro programming. Um, I went very heavily into it because I thought that was going to be the saviour of my soul. Uh, it didn't work out. And um, I think what Mark has researched and studied so well with our brain networks and using a... Um, a strategy of 
meta-awareness and relaxed mindful awareness. The thing that I like about this is that it uses our five brain networks to intuitively allow us to come to our own conclusions or revelations about ourselves. So I guide people um, in strategies. I don't I don't advise and I don't say what is going on for them. I ask them what's going on for them. Um, so a client actually gets to heal themselves just using their own brain networks. The other thing that I like about the uniqueness of this um, of network neuroscience is it is intuition. I always call it a dance, dancing with the other person's intuition. So um, I always, or we, I should say, in, in network neuroscience, we always um, allow the client to come to their own realisations, um, their own intuitive work using all their networks um, before we even share anything and we only share if we think it's going to benefit the client we hold back because I don't know them um, I don't know what they're thinking I don't know what they're feeling and so I love the guidance that we do allowing the person to experience their own revelations and experiences. So my model, the way I've used Mark's work, is I have a very, um, what you would call an experiential model. So I, yes, I have the science and yes, I know all that. But someone said to me once, it was a coach, another coach said to me, uh, I was about to do some trauma work with her and I said, oh, well, she was going to do Mark's new course. And I said, oh, well, if you're going to do that, you don't need to see me anymore. And she said, oh, no, hang on, hang on. Having the knowledge is very different to doing the work. I do the work with you where Mark teaches me the knowledge. And that's the difference and the very powerful difference. We both know our own boundaries and guidelines. So I walk people through so that when something occurs in their life, they know how to deal with it uh, without the high alertness or without what what we know that word that isn't true in network neuroscience called triggers. You know, um, someone asked me the other day, you know, what do you do when you get triggered? And I said, well, and I actually said, well, I very rarely anymore. I don't. It's that's once you learn network neuroscience, you realise that uh, the triggers are not triggers. Something else is happening in your brain. So can we talk about that? So yeah. In in the backstory I mentioned yeah, sure. I mentioned it just from reading people's books over over the years and interviewing them there mm. was this one young man he's a school counselor Hans Apple and he talked in the very beginning pages of his book when the door would slam he he mentioned it felt like a trigger for him that oh no my dad's coming home he would relate to that sound and then when I was reading his book, I thought, I just don't like the sound of ice hitting a glass. It just takes me back to mm -hmm. over 20 years ago when someone close to me would drink at night too much and they just were harming themselves. Nothing bad to me, but I didn't like watching it. So to this day, 20 years later, I don't like the sound of, of ice hitting a glass from a machine. 
I would think that's a trigger. What What do you think that is then? That is your brain telling you something is about to happen or might happen, and it's warning you. Remember the last time I heard this, this happened. What's going to happen to you now? So that's what the latest neuroscience from about no, November of last year, this got released. Um, when you hear the ice against the glass, your brain's going, oh, I know that. I can identify that noise. That means someone's going to come through the door. So actually what it is, it's, it's an anxiety about the future. What's going to happen now? It's a fear about the future not about the past it's just remembering oh i know that noise and so it's warning you last time you heard this noise this happened what are you going to do now so it's actually a point to your future not to your past does that make sense it does As I, it was interesting knowing this i was listening to you both from his story and i was going oh listen to that it's all future talking about what's going to happen next and you just gave exactly the same example, what's going to happen next. It's actually, we think of it as the past, but it's actually a warning for what's going to happen next. We know that noise. Totally. What's going to happen next? So it's 20 years later, I'm still thinking that, you know, I've, uh, it, it doesn't happen often because I'll tell my kids, don't put the glass under the refrigerator. It's going to break. But I know uh, I don't like the glass. It's not because it's going to break. It's because that sound makes me feel uneasy. Yes, because you don't know. It, your brain doesn't know what's going to happen next. Mm. It's like the saber-toothed tiger. It's a warning. Got it's it. not a trigger. It's a warning. This happened last time. Now what's going to happen next? And you you have a choice to make then. You know, we um in uh relax mindful awareness in this network neuro coaching there is no past and there is no future there's only the present moment so what your brain is saying what we've traditionally called triggers what your brain is saying is whoop saber tooth tiger i know this i know something's about to happen what are you going to do to protect yourself basically what you know and then you have a choice and all you have to say um um, th there are two things that you can do. You can say, no, I, that's, I don't live there now. No, that's not going to happen now. And just you will calm down immediately because your body will respond to what you say next. Because once it knows it's not going to happen, there's nothing to be afraid of. All it is is fear about the next minute or so, what's going to happen now. So once you just say, oh, no, I don't live there anymore. I live here. No, we don't do that in our house. I often say to clients, just have a look around when they're talking about a person who harmed them in their family home or any place. Just have a look around the room now. Are they in the room? No. Are you alone? Yes. Can you be harmed in this present moment? No. And then all of a sudden, their whole body is less stiff. They start relaxing and they can talk and it's like, Oh, yeah, I'm in my heart. I don't live there anymore. I'm not five years old anymore. And it just totally and utterly relaxes them. The other thing you can do is what is the center of my business is just take out the energy 
out of the memory. Because, see, um, unlike you might have heard in other um, other other areas of life, uh, neuroscientists don't believe in a muscle called memory. There's no such thing as memory. It's a it's a trace. It's a remembrance in the present moment to warn you or to tell you about something that's going to happen in the future. And every time we remember it, it's something different, like Edward Ledoux, the great neuroscientist, neuroscientist, he says, um, your deepest and greatest memory is only as old as the last time you remembered it. Because every time we remember it, we're in a different stage of life and we remember different things. So that's what I do. I pull out the energy out of the emotional distress. And if you can just, and once you get used to doing that, you just say, oh, no, I don't live there anymore. What am I even thinking like that for? You know, it just goes away. It just eventually goes away. It's, it's funny, um, Andrea, I was sitting here yesterday going, I feel so tense. Like, what on earth is going on in me? And I was thinking, am I afraid of something? Am, am I? And I realised what it was. And I went, oh, my goodness, look at that. Here we go again. Um, and it was just a fear about what was going to happen if I didn't do something because I had to quickly go to work. So that's all it was. It was about my because I have my business at home and I work in a school to help children come out of trauma or uh, live their best life. Um, so that's all it is. It's an understanding of how our networks work in our brain and know that what we used to call uh, trauma or triggers or or memory are actually traces of previous experiences that are in the present moment and we have a choice just to acknowledge, oh, yeah, that's a present issue, not a past or a future. Does that make sense? It, it does. And so I'm just thinking of my experience is nothing compared to what you've gone through and what Hans Apple went through or even many of the students in our schools so how do you take you know these big issues that they're facing and help them with it is it is it all the same it, it's just getting rid of the energy behind what happened to them so they can move forward is it big traumas are the same as my ice hitting a glass i had a little girl in one of my schools and, and when i walked into the schoolyard I saw her crouched down in a corner behind a fence in the schoolyard, early learning. So we're talking about three-year-old, four-year-old. No, she's three. She's in the one inside. Um, and a teacher screaming at her. I've got to tell you, the teacher had lost control. I was actually quite shocked. So I walked over to the little girl and I just said to her, are you all right, honey? And then the teacher said to me, I've called the mother. Don't worry about it. She, There's nothing you can do for her. She just does this and she sits there and she complains. And, and she told me that the little girl had hit someone else with a doll in her face. And the teacher wanted her to forgive her, to go and say sorry. So I said, okay. And she wouldn't. She couldn't. I, I don't think she could. She was just so afraid of the teacher. So I just said, okay, hang on. And I just went over to a box. I got a fluffy toy and I just went and put it in the in the little girl's hands. And I just sat, I sat down on the ground with her. So I was at eye level 
and I just smiled. Um, we can talk about the Mona Lisa smile, but I just did the Mona Lisa smile. And probably within five minutes, um, I don't think it took that long, but I'll say five to be fair, um, she started opening up and telling me what had happened. And I said, oh, gee, do you, do you think that's a kind thing to do to your friend? She said, no. I said, are you happy to say you're sorry? Oh, yes. She went down. The little girl was so upset that this little girl took three times to say she was sorry before it was heard. That little girl has never put on the same tantrum again, ever. And I just think if we could teach teachers these simple strategies, they would have such an easier time with children who either had traumatic pasts or um, or were in a state of, um, I'll say, unstableness because of the unemotional regulation. I I can't see how the day would be a, wouldn't be a breeze if I could get around and teach all the teachers this in the world. You know, it's sort of one of those things where you see um, experiences of children and lighting up and teachers being able to teach them seconds after something happened in the in the classroom. I just think it's worth it's worth our life. Um, I one of our mutual mentors, uh, John Asaraf, he says, you know, what is it that you're willing to trade your life for? And I think for me, I'd be willing to trade my life to teach teachers and children how to do these strategies so their life's worth living, you know. They don't have to go down all these rabbit holes. Yeah, and 20 years ago when I was in teacher training, they didn't teach us this. So I stood in front of my no. students and they were behavioural. And for the life of me, I didn't know what to do with them. It was me against them and and I wasn't winning, you know. And so, yeah. you know, there's it, it was very painful. But so can you just talk about some of the strategies you you've alluded to some you gave the young girl uh, a fluffy toy? I know that I've heard definitely heard of that strategy being used. Um, what other strategies do you have to help students self-regulate and calm their brains when they might be experiencing a trauma response? Okay, so the 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 number one, um, and I think the base for everything, is a head stretch. Now, I do mine. Um, it's funny. Mark taught me how to do this, and the girl who did her research, Kelly, she uh, we now do it a particular way because of the benefit that it brings um so are your is your audience i can see us is that correct Yeah, it'll be on As video if people want to watch the youtube version yes yeah okay so um what you do is the first thing is a head stretch so the reason um i always get them to put their chin um at the base of their neck like this and do a complete head roll now one of the things with the head roll is it's got to take a minute to go the full way around. So you go as slow, as slow as you can. Now, the reason we do this head roll is because it is signifying to the brain, the brain's got time to find out where we're tense at the bottom of our neck 
and our shoulders. So the slower you go, the more opportunity the brain has to discern, find out where are we tense. And it just sends healing chemicals down there and makes us more relaxed. Um, just really, it's the quickest, easiest, cheapest massage you could have. Um, now, after you do your, your head stretch, then you do three very deep mindful yawns. The difference between a mindful yawn and a normal yawn is a mindful yawn is about focus. So when you're yawning, you focus on where your yawn is coming from. So again, just like the very slow head stretch, with the yawning, it's as wide mouthed as you can. The reason why is because it's getting toxins out. And the other thing is people say, why do we have to do it three times? Well, the first two changes your feelings. If you ask people between the yawns, they'll say they're more relaxed or they're calmer. With the third yawn, it's actually changing your mood. It is just really beautiful. Now, I don't know if you know, Andrea, but with yawning, there's over three 3,300 and there's many more now because that's when I first started training. Um, scientific research studies that the yawn is like an air conditioner on your brain. You know, so anytime you're caught, you know, like um, the old coaching method used to be if you're stuck in a rut, you know, if you're if you can't move forward, if you're tired, anything, if you need to just break state for a minute, all you've got to do is yawn because it will take you out of that network and put you in the right one. So yawning for me, I just think it's a lifesaver. Um, so we have the head stretch, we have the yawns, and yes, you can yawn just once without the head stretch, you know, if, if a child is um, distracted or something. Um, and the next thing to do that I teach the children, because it's easier than what I'm going to tell an adult, uh, so I'll do, a, I'll do a child one and then I'll do a teacher one. So the child one is head stretch, yawn, and then a self-nurturing touch where you're rubbing your hands very, very gently and very slowly. So it's like the head stretch. The nerve tingles here in the, in the tip of your fingers. And what you're doing is you're actually bringing those nerves very slowly down to actually self-nurture yourself. Now, I know teachers who've used this and have completely stopped all the bullying in a schoolyard. I know one school um, in another country went from being the lowest school for bullying and now they're the highest performing academia because they taught them this. So if, you know, um, you know, like a I won't say genders, but, you know, someone can pull a girl's hair or someone, you know, if if you just teach them how to do this or someone's calling them names, then um, they can self-regulate and it's just like water off a duck's back because this is being kind to your soul. So so I told you this week was hard for my, for my girls going back to school. I completely mm. forgot about this strategy because now I'm looking for strategies they can use in addition to ones that we can use ourselves. Because I want to ask you, how has um, how have you and Michael Curtin, who deals with all these high level professionals, how do you teach 
this type of thing to someone in the workplace. Like, I'm not going to just sit at my desk and start yawning in the middle of a meeting, you know? Or I do. I teach do. my school that. Yeah, you do. do you? Wow. Yeah, you do. I'll tell yeah, there are. If you're in the book Neuro Wisdom, um, he talks about um, a big corporate company, an international company, who now they do this every morning. They stand together. And I'll give you one more scene. We're talking about adults. Yeah. The other thing is to ask your intuition, what is your deepest core value in this moment? So if I said to you, can you ask your intuition, what is your deepest core value in this moment? What would you say? I always think learning. Just learning. Learning. Okay. That would make sense for you. Um, so that if you're distracted or if you can't, just drop into that deepest value. So imagine if you said to your colleagues in the in the morning, if we all sat in a circle or sat or stood in a circle and said, okay, what's our deepest core value? And someone said learning. I would go, oh, wow, that's really awesome. You're going to learn something today. You know, and everyone knows where they're coming from, where each other is coming from with their values. Um, I had an experience at the end of last year where um, I, m my greatest desire is uh, to learn how to love people so that they always know they're safe with me. And this particular day, my value was love. And I was coming, walking down the road and there was a lady coming out of the chemist and she was screaming and shouting and, you know, if there's some words were flying everywhere and she just came straight at me. And I just heard my intuition. It was like it dumped me in love. I just felt love. And all of a sudden I smiled at her. I was kind, I just listened till she ran out of steam and then she left. And I was like, wow, this really works. You know, it was such an eye opener that someone who could really have distracted me and get me in a bad mood and, you know, I, taken me off the rails. But I, it, my intuition just went love. And that was it. I was full on loving her, being kind, listening like I always do. Um, and I because I really believe in person, person centered listening. Um, I don't want to hear my own voice. I know what it sounds like. I want to hear others. But she just kept talking until she had nothing more to say and then off she went. And off she went quietly too because I hadn't responded in that angry way. So I teach people how to do it. The other thing is if you're embarrassed about uh, yawning, just look away as if you're yawning. Like, like honestly, you know, like on, when I say honestly, I mean like people do when they yawn. They go like this or they turn around from the audience and go like this. It's not an unobserved um, action for someone to yawn or to um, see if you're doing this, like quite often you'll see me in, especially in professional learning days, when someone is getting upset about something because they're trying to teach something or they might not remember something. I find technology is the one thing that sends people into another orbit, you know, when technology doesn't work. And I just go, hands and, and and they'll remember to do this or face does the same thing um andrea if you put i forgot yeah, that self <clears throat> yeah that'll do it all the time there is no i've never known a time it hasn't worked 
It's always there for me. It's the safest thing to call on because it immediately puts you into self-regulation. So, so can we just talk a little bit about like these traumatic experiences that happen um, and then maybe go into the emotions? Like I know you know this from the back of your hand, um, Jack Pangsept, and we've covered his seven primal emotions and we've covered them really deeply. Um, but how do you teach people to overcome their fears? Like that's hardwired. Yeah. It's primal. It's one of his. It's hardwired. We're not changing fear. <laughs> Just like I talked to you about me jumping off the back of that ship. Uh, the, the fear yeah. was not going anywhere. And you said, Andrea, if you had mm -hmm. yawned, you would have gotten out of your, what would it, how, how would I have? Emotional network. Yeah. Explain to me what we can do when we're stuck in our Pri our seven primal fears. How do we switch mm. out of them? Um, how would you have told me to jump off the back of that ship? Because everyone screaming jump wasn't working. <laughs> no, nor would it work either, because that makes you more fearful. Interview. Yeah, but but if you think but that about, isn't going to happen, it, it wouldn't have happened. I'm I'm a former lifeguard. I feel like what it was. Oh. I didn't know what was under the the water and they teach us like don't jump in there could be rocks and then i saw this photograph later it was crystal blue and you could see there was no rocks there was nothing that could have harmed me i feel like the understanding would have trumped the fear if once you understand you know what's your worst case scenario well i hit the bottom and i push off I'm not hitting rocks that that's going to paralyze me, right? It was it was once I saw. Ah, uh, okay. That's a different issue, um, Andrea, because you have already been primed in your brain. You have already got learned conditioning that says there might be rocks under the water. Mm. Sure. So you have a belief system there might be rocks under the water, and if I hit the rocks, I might die. That's a very different issue to someone just being scared to jump off a boat. Ah, okay. You've got learned conditioning to break through. This still would have done it. It still would have done it. I would have used it still, but that's a that's a solid that's training. You know, repetition is the mother of all learning. And what you did was train yourself not to go into water you don't know because there could be rocks under the water. You don't know what's under the water. That's a very different issue because what they're training you for is saber-toothed tiger. Some things could be there to harm you. Your brain is not going to let you go into harm and nor should it. So the, so the solution Number one, was, was I should have searched the water first and then I would have had the understanding at the top. I didn't think about it until I got to uh, Yeah, no, no. Uh, you're saying the word should, which is making you wrong. I don't want you to do that. What you could have done, tell me what you could have done as you think about it now. What could you have done that might have made the situation easier for you? Well, researched it a bit better so that I had full understanding that that there was nothing underneath. And this has happened before. This isn't the first time. I, I was on another holiday mm -hmm. jumping into this green water and it was in, in Hawaii. And I was like, there's no way I'm jumping into that green water. I was thinking there was dead bodies underneath. You couldn't see. Yeah. You know, I was no way. You guys go. <laughs> you jump off into the green water. But 
and, and now that I know I could have looked underneath that boat, I could have um, seen a photo, I could have asked somebody, I could have researched to know and and had more understanding. Now I, listen to what you're saying. That research would have taken you how long compared to a yawn? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So because I'm using my executive. Because you just went through a hot. Yeah. 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 Um, yes, do do all those things if you like. I, I The more you're explaining it, I don't see anything wrong with you not being able to jump off the boat. You're trained not to. What you're asking your brain to do is to deny your training. Interesting. Yeah, because it was a massive conflict. I, I know when I'm in massive yeah. conflict, I'm like, there's something else going on. I'm, I'm still trying to figure Yeah, there is. No, no need anymore. You've got learned conditioning in there. Oh, that that's that's hardwired in your brain. Okay. So we're learned. And I'm actually glad you didn't jump. Interesting. Yeah, there, there was nothing that could have made me jump. I knew. No, no, no exactly right. Kill me because I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I totally understand. I wouldn't expect you to be any other way. That's a very different issue to someone being scared to jump off the back of the boat. Interesting. Interesting. You're trying not to. So so then what else should we know about trauma and our brain that you could help us with? And, um, you know, Pangsep's work, like, uh, and, and yeah, now I was hardwired not to not to jump. I get it now. I understand. Um, mm. What else should we know about Pangsept and our emotions and getting um, I when I do emotions with people, um, I, I have a program where they literally restore their soul from what they from effects negative effects in their life and then the next level is transformation so in that i i help them become aware of their emotions now what i do is i actually give them an opportunity because you're right they're not going away so what we what we want to be able to do is to use them for our benefit so we have seven primal emotions. How do we, now we know that, how do we use them for our benefit and not for unuseful reasons? So um, I say to people, I get them in the present moment, and then I say to them, I always ask them what is their value in, that, in this present moment. So the other day I had someone who said to me their value was peace, and we were doing anger emotions so she could learn when anger was serving her or being unuseful and so i said okay when does when was a time when your anger took away your peace and she came up with an instance um and then we worked through that and she felt how it made her feel because as i said my work's experiential so she then got to realize oh wow the anger was appropriate and then i take them through a negative event when it's being unuseful and you know that's when usually when we're in rage and it happens a lot we often get um the two the two instances in life where we usually feel anger is when our boundaries are crossed even if they're unspoken boundaries but our you know our soul level boundaries uh, I've just done moral injury training with our 
Australian Defence Forces. And one of the issues that will bring up anger very quickly is when we're asked to do something that is against our values. So there's always a reason for why we're doing something. So I help people understand the difference between when we are experiencing those emotions usefully, like you. You weren't going to jump. You're afraid. It was appropriate fear. That's what you had been trained with. And, and then I work with them on times it's unuseful and they get to feel that and what that is like so that their awareness then is I can either choose this feeling or that feeling. And I don't know if you know or if your listeners know, but when we have a feeling, the emotion's already finished. So what happens is the emotion fires off, into, you know, activates in our brain. And it sends cortisol or whatever it is, it sends that chemical to what we would call feelings. So if you're feeling something, the emotion's already finished because the light's off, it's deactivated because it's done its job. Once we get a feeling, I can assure you the emotion's gone because the emotion is a response. Oh, sorry, the feeling is a response to the emotion. So the emotion's deactivated in our brain. The lights have gone out on the, on the scans and now we're just left with this feeling. So quite often I'll be feeling, like I said to you, angry the other day. Oh, I couldn't work out what it was. So I had to sit there and go, now what was that all about? Um, because you start discerning the difference. I wasn't feeling good. So I was like, okay, there's a mango around. Why was I angry? For what reason am I angry? And I'll, I'll go there for one quick minute, um, Andrea. Why gets the brain defensive? If you say, for what reason am I doing this? It's not defensive. It's just looking for what what's going on. Um, and there is the new way with neuroscience where all you have to do is head stretch, just um, do a yawn and just let your mind wander. And then once something happens, let your mind wander and then let your mind wander. And all you're doing is observing what is happening in your brain and you start to realise all these thoughts are going through our default network. You know, that's the imaginative and creative network. They're not real. They're just going in and coming out, going in and coming out. And it's just all of a sudden, it's like emotions. We have emotions, but we're not our emotions. We have thoughts, but we're not our thoughts. We have feelings, but feelings aren't fact. They're not true. You know, it's when you start realising that we have the power to be in control of our own lives, it's amazing because many times we're taught we're not, we can't be, especially someone who's suffered trauma. You know, oh, I've got to have all these big reasons for and I've got to have all these big reactions or it wasn't, you know, I didn't think enough about the trauma or I didn't love the person enough. Or I, and I feel so sorry for people. You know, we put all these expectations on them, um, starting right back to Freud. Um, who I used to love, uh, and I wish there was a way to get the message out to people just how easy it is to live our lives, even 
though we have suffered trauma. Because not everyone has PTSD or has a long response to trauma. You know, if we can control our emotional world, like I was just saying, you know, when you're feeling, no, this is not being useful, this emotion at the moment, let's let's have a look at it. Um, I think we'll better world will be. Does that help? It does. Now, one one strategy that I know that you've used that I've used, can you just go through how you would do the crap board? Because, you know, we can ah. hear all this stuff like, um, so it's it's mm -hmm. writing down our conflicts, resistances, anxieties, and problems. And then can you tell me how you would do it and show that there, what, what would you ask someone to show that what you're worried about isn't real? Is that how it works? Okay. Yeah. So I won't say it's not real. I would say it might not be as serious as you think or as strong as you think. So I get them to, I do mine in an art journal. Just hang on a minute. I don't know if you have these in the States, but you know, these art books. Yeah, yeah. So I get my clients to do one of these and they do see it, you know, four columns, C-R-A-P. And then they just brainstorm. I give them half an hour. They usually finish beforehand, but I give them half an hour to, uh, to do a brainstorm of each column. Then I'll do a head stretch and three yawns and ask them to observe it. Just look at it. Don't judge it. Don't be biased. Don't justify it. Don't get emotional about it. Just observe it. So they do. And then I ask them to scale zero to 10 about how serious they are. How real is it? Now, some of them do get a zero. You know, others will have one or two. Others will have a 10. So I usually get them then to cross out the ones under five because I just say to them, do you think you can resolve all them because they're under five? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Um, then from five to ten, I ask them to look at it. And I ask them to, to just consider, do they know a strategy that might resolve that issue? Or would they like some help? And then I get them to put it, or one guy's at the moment, um, he works in a boarding house. He's got his on the back of his door and he looks at it and he crosses things off and he, um, and he puts things on when it's added to. He, ha he has three jobs. He's in very much demand around the place. And, um, and he uses his crap board to keep his mind free because the, the brain relaxes. Once it knows you've taken note of that issue, doesn't have to worry about it you're not ruminating all day long now because of your audience andrea i'd like to say something else in relation to exam time what i say to the students you know how when you're feeling stressed about something all the other stresses in life come into effect what i teach my students is this anything from zero to five can you put all that after the exam yes and then we go one by one for the five to 10, can that wait to the exam? Yes, till after the exam, yes. There's a 10 over here in the problem. If it's a 10, usually that's like a hot rock. Can that wait till after the exam? Mm. 
Yeah, probably could. And what I do is I help them see that all their problems are not issues they have to get buried down in now. They can actually wait till after the exam. And it just takes all the stress or everything, all their worries, that is not about focusing on your exam away till after the exam. And they have it there on their study tables or on the wall. I usually get them to put it so that they can just quickly pick a pen and put something up if it comes up in their brain. But that's how I help them with pre-exam stress. Or even... And the then they can... Like, think about this for the workers yeah. too, because I try to cover two angles for the students. And then if mm -hmm. you've got a presentation that you're doing or you've got to be at work and life is stressful, yeah. the same idea, right? You have your crap board in front of you and all your tens. Can we just get it out of our head so we can focus? Because life is hard exactly every day anyway. And we have to have strategies. Yep. Great strategy. I, I really like how you do that. I wondered how you did your crap board versus I've written mine yeah. out and I know what what issues are real. They're real and they're tens and mm -hmm. and they're there. But how do yeah. I do life knowing I have these real issues on a day to day basis? So it's just knowing yeah. there. And, it, and it, I remember hearing something like once you've written it down, it's like taking um, when back in the old days where we used to have those discs in our computers or, oh yeah, you know, take it out of the computer. It's not in my head anymore. Just yeah. it's out of the yeah. computer. It's on the paper and it can't affect me day to day. Is that right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Once it's out, the brain stops ruminating. Got it. Got so it. going over and over and over on negative thoughts. Yep. That's what that does. Well, that's a great solution. What would be your final thoughts, Grace? And and how can people reach out to you? Tell me your websites for people who might want to work with you and learn some of these strategies with you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, okay. um, I I would I would um, I'll give you my email and I'll give you my Facebook uh, because I'm about to run a challenge. So the first level of my work is about to be free. So they, um, it, it it's quite exciting. Um, so I'll give you my email is grace at mindfulneurocoaching.com. I don't mind if you put that in your marketing material. I always give my first name rather than info at or support at because when you're dealing with people's emotions, they have to know you're safe. And I don't want them to be thinking like they're just writing to a computer, you know, info at. They don't know who that's going to go to. So I always guarantee, even in my busy life, I will answer the emails because I think at the end of the day, safety has to come first. Um, the second thing is my Facebook page, Mindful Neurocoaching um, International. You'll see it. Just call it up. That is where you can get me the most. I'm just doing a series of posts at the moment on what post-traumatic growth is. So uh, I'm really working through that. Um, and then the challenge is about to happen. It'll, ha it'll happen in about a week's time. So the challenge is about to go up and live. Um, and it does, I can and add, that's just... I'll add your challenge. Yeah. That's for sure. Okay, that, that's great. So that'll all be about restoring our soul after trauma. 
Got it. Well, Grace, I want to mm. thank you so much. And your name says it all. I, I was thinking, what's my experience with you over the years? And your name says it. it. You talk about a difficult subject with such grace and hope mm. that anyone can understand that they can get through the most difficult and challenging times. So I want to thank you so much for this, Grace. Um, any final thoughts to close out? Yeah, there is actually. I mentioned something and I didn't elaborate. So I would like to close the door, the window, so that other people don't have to think, oh, what did she mean by that? The Mona Lisa smile. Yes. The Mona Lisa smile is the most trusted smile in the universe. They have done research in most countries of the world, even in New Guinea with the natives. And they tested, um, his name's Paul Ekman, and he, I have all his books, I study him, I do his courses, because I want to make sure that when someone looks at me, I can see who they are. And if they're in any traumatic response when they're talking to me, I can see it in their face and I don't have to, I can treat them with extra special care. I don't have to prod, you know? And so I, when I'm working with clients, I have the Mona Lisa smile sitting to my left and I always make sure that I've got the Mona Lisa smile on no matter how long. And people have timed me two hour sessions. Um, I've been quite shocked. People have said, you've stayed that with that smile the whole time. How do you do it? It's because, you know, why would you not want to be trustworthy doing this work? You know, imagine if we were a trustworthy world. So for my client's safety and benefit, I practice the Mona Lisa smile all the time. You know, I'll, if I haven't got it on, the other day some students were talking from the podium and they were talking about difficult things and I thought, my smile. And I quickly put my smile on, you know, and it, instantly you could see the change. It really does work, Andrea. So I encourage half everyone, smile, use the right? Mona Lisa smile. It's a half smile. So, sorry. So people, people. Yeah, it's a half smile. Half smile. It's a half smile and it, it, yeah. And there's a turn. It's the turn at the end of her lips that makes it so trustworthy. The way her nose is because the turn at the end of her lips, is that called lips here? That's not called at the corner of her mouth is what causes the face to fall in a trustworthy place that the heart of the receiver can receive the smile and all the benefits that come with it. It's beautiful. Love it. Grace, thank you so much for that final thought. You're welcome. We can get to the heart of people and trust them and have mm -hmm. them trust us just by our facial expressions. And we've covered a bit of, on Paul Ekman's work as well. So thank you so much for your time today. I hope people check out your yeah. work and your challenge because I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and the years of getting to know you through our training. Thanks so much, Grace. You're very welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Some final thoughts. This interview with my good friend, Grace, helped me to see that no matter who we are, a parent struggling with something at work or home, or a child struggling with life and their new transitions, there's current brain research and mindfulness-based strategies that we can all use immediately to self-regulate and move forward. 
I'd forgotten about some of these strategies, but will begin to use Grace's suggestions myself and with my family, and I hope that her ideas have helped you to look a bit closer at your own life and perhaps why certain things might make you feel uneasy. Is it just the way our brain is wired to keep us safe? How can we all use this new understanding of our brain to move us forward? I'll let you explore how you'll do this, but I'm going to start by updating my crap board and see what conflicts, resistances, anxieties, and problems that I have today versus the one I did in 2018 that I put in the YouTube video just to see which ones are real and valid and if I can cross off any of them from my list and get them out of my head. I'm also going to attempt to crap board with my girls to see if it can help them to get their worries out of their head and onto paper for us to look at and solve together. And with that, I'll close out this episode and I'll see you next week as we go back to part two of Going Back to the Basics. See you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 